Section one of Sir Edmund Orme. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicholas Clifford. Sir Edmund Orme by Henry James. Section one. The statement appears to have been written, though the fragment is undated, long after the death of his wife, whom I take to have been one of the persons referred to. There is, however, nothing in the strange story to establish this point, which is, perhaps, not of importance. When I took possession of his effects, I found these pages in a locked drawer, among papers relating to that unfortunate lady's too brief career. She died in childbirth a year after her marriage. Letters, memoranda, accounts, faded photographs, cards of invitation. That is the only connection I can point to and you may easily and will probably say that the tale is too extravagant to have had a demonstrable origin. I cannot, I admit, vouch for his having intended it as a report of real occurrence. I can only vouch for his general veracity. In any case it was written for himself, not for others. I offer it to others, having full option, precisely because it is so singular. Let them, in respect to the form of the thing, bear in mind that it was written quite for himself. I have altered nothing but the names. If there's a story in the matter, I recognize the exact moment at which it began. This was on a soft, still, Sunday noon in November, just after church, on the sunny parade. Brighton was full of people. It was the height of the season, and the day was even more respectable than lovely, which helped to account for the multitude of walkers. The blue sea itself was decorous. It seemed to doze, with a gentle snore, if that be decorum, as if nature were preaching a sermon. After writing letters all the morning, I had come out to take a look at it before luncheon. I was leaning over the rail which separates the King's Road from the beach, and I think I was smoking a cigarette, when I became conscious of an intended joke in the shape of a light walking-stick laid across my shoulders. The idea, I found, had been thrown off by Teddy Bostwick, of the Rifles, and was intended as a contribution to talk. Our talk came off as we strolled together. He always took your arm to show you he forgave you your obtuseness about his humour, and looked at the people, and bowed to some of them, and wondered who others were, and differed in opinion as to the prettiness of the girls. About Charlotte Marden we agreed, however, as we saw her coming toward us with her mother, and there surely could have been no one who wouldn't have agreed with us. The Brighton air of old used to make plain girls pretty, and pretty girls prettier still. I don't know whether it works the spell now. The place, at any rate, was rare for complexions, and Miss Marden's was one that made people turn round. It made us stop, heaven knows. At least it was one of the things, for we already knew the ladies. We turned with them, we joined them, we went where they were going. They were only going to the end and back, they had just come out of church. It was another manifestation of Teddy's humour, that he got immediate possession of Charlotte, leaving me to walk with her mother. However, I was not unhappy. The girl was before me, and I had her to talk about. We prolonged our walk, Mrs. Marden kept me, and presently she said she was tired and must sit down. We found a place on a sheltered bench. We gossiped as the people passed. It had already struck me in this pair that the resemblance between the mother and the daughter was wonderful even among such resemblances, the more so that it took so little account of a difference of nature. 
One often hears mature mothers spoken of as warnings, signposts, more or less discouraging, of the way daughters may go. But there was nothing deterrent in the idea that Charlotte, at fifty-five, should be as beautiful, even though it were conditioned on her being as pale and preoccupied as Mrs. Marden. At twenty-two she had a kind of rosy blankness, and she was admirably handsome. Her head had the charming shape of her mother's, and her features the same fine order. Then there were looks and movements and tones, moments when you could scarcely say whether it were aspect or sound, which between the two personalities were a reflection, a recall. These ladies had a small fortune at a cheerful little house at Brighton, full of portraits and tokens and trophies, stuffed animals on the top of bookcases, and sallow, varnished fish under glass, to which Mrs. Marden professed herself attached by pious memories. Her husband had been ordered there in ill health, to spend the last years of his life, and she had already mentioned to me that it was a place in which she felt herself still under the protection of his goodness. His goodness appeared to have been great, and she sometimes had the air of defending it against mysterious imputations. Some sense of protection, of an influence invoked and cherished, was evidently necessary to her. She had a dim wistfulness, a longing for security. She wanted friends, and she had a good many. She was kind to me on our first meeting, and I never suspected her of the vulgar purpose of making up to me, a suspicion, of course, unduly frequent in conceited young men. It never struck me that she wanted me for her daughter, nor yet, like some unnatural mamas, for herself. It was as if they had had a common, deep, shy need, and had been ready to say, Oh, be friendly to us, and be trustful. Don't be afraid. You won't be expected to marry us. Of course there's something about mamma. That's really what makes her such a dear, Charlotte said to me confidentially, at an early stage of our acquaintance. She worshipped her mother's appearance. It was the only thing she was vain of. She accepted the raised eyebrows as a charming ultimate fact. She looks as if she were waiting for the doctor, dear mamma, she said on another occasion. Perhaps you're the doctor. Do you think you are? It appeared in the event that I had some healing power. At any rate, when I learned, for she once dropped the remark, that Mrs. Marden also thought there was something awfully strange about Charlotte, the relation between the two ladies became extremely interesting. It was happy enough at bottom. Each had the other so much on her mind. On the parade the stream of strollers held its course, and Charlotte presently went by with Teddy Bostwick. She smiled and nodded and continued, but when she came back she stopped and spoke to us. Captain Bostwick positively declined to go in. He said the occasion was too jolly. Might they therefore take another turn? Her mother dropped a, do as you like, and the girl gave me an impertinent smile over her shoulder as they quitted us. Teddy looked at me with his glass in one eye. But I didn't mind that. It was only of Miss Marden I was thinking, as I observed to my companion laughing. She's a bit of a coquette, you know. Don't say that, don't say that, Mrs. Marden murmured. The nicest girls always are, just a little, I was magnanimous enough to plead. Then why are they always punished? The intensity of the question startled me. It had come out in such a vivid flash. Therefore I had to think a moment before I inquired. What do you know about it? I was a bad girl myself. And were you punished? 
I carry it through life, said Mrs. Marden, looking away from me. Ah, she suddenly panted in the next breath, rising to her feet and staring at her daughter, who had reappeared again with Captain Bostwick. She stood a few seconds, with the queerest expression in her face. Then she sank upon the seat again, and I saw that she had blushed crimson. Charlotte, who had observed her movement, came up straight to her, and taking her hand with quick tenderness, seated herself on the other side of her. The girl had turned pale. She gave her mother a fixed, frightened look. Mrs. Marden, who had had some shock which escaped our detection, recovered herself. That is, she sat quiet and inexpressive, gazing at the indifferent crowd, the sunny air, the slumbering sea. My eye happened to fall, however, on the interlocked hands of the two ladies, and I quickly guessed that the grasp of the elder one was violent. Bostwick stood before them, wondering what was the matter, and asking me from his little vacant disk if I knew, which led Charlotte to say to him after a moment, with a certain irritation, "'Don't stand there that way, Captain Bostwick. Go away. Please go away.' I got up at this, hoping that Mrs. Marden wasn't ill, but she immediately begged that we would not go away, that we would particularly stay, and that we would presently come home to lunch. She drew me down beside her, and for a moment I felt her hand pressing my arm in a way that might have been an involuntary betrayal of distress, and might have been a private signal. What she might have wished to point out to me, I couldn't divine. Perhaps she had seen somebody or something abnormal in the crowd. She explained to us in a few minutes that she was all right, that she was only liable to palpitations. They came as quickly as they went. It was time to move, and we moved. The incident was felt to be closed. Bostwick and I lunched with our sociable friends, and when I walked away with him, he declared that he had never seen such dear, kind creatures. Mrs. Marden had made his promise to come back the next day to tea, and had exhorted us in general to come as often as we could. Yet the next day, when at five o'clock I knocked at the door of the pretty house, it was to learn that the ladies had gone up to town. They had left a message for us with the butler. He was to say that they had suddenly been called, were very sorry, they would be absent a few days. That was all I could extract from the dumb domestic. I went again three days later, but they were still away, and it was not till the end of a week that I got a note from Mrs. Marden saying, "'We are back. Do come and forgive us.' It was on this occasion, I remember, the occasion of my going just after getting the note, that she told me she had intuitions. I don't know how many people there were in England at that time in that predicament, but there were very few who would have mentioned it. So that the announcement struck me as original, especially as her point was that some of these uncanny promptings were connected with me. There were other people present, idle, brighton folk, old women with frightened eyes and irrelevant interjections, and I had but a few minutes' talk with Charlotte. But the day after this I met them both at dinner, and had the satisfaction of sitting next to Miss Marden. I recall that hour as the hour on which it first completely came over me, that she was a beautiful, liberal creature. I had seen her personality in patches and gleams, like a song sung in snatches, but now it was before me in a large, rosy glow, as if it had been a full volume of sound. I heard the whole of the air. It was sweet, fresh music. I was often to hum it over. After dinner I had a few words with Mrs. Marden. 
It was at the moment, late in the evening, when tea was handed about. A servant passed near us with a tray. I asked her if she would have a cup, and, on her assenting, took one and handed it to her. She put out her hand for it, and I gave it to her, safely as I supposed, but as she was in the act of receiving it, she started and faltered, so that the cup and saucer dropped with a crash of porcelain, and without, on the part of my interlocutress, the usual woman's movement to save her dress. I stooped to pick up the fragments, and when I raised myself, Mrs. Marden was looking across the room at her daughter, who looked back at her smiling, but with an anxious light in her eyes. "'Dear Mamma, what on earth is the matter with you?' the silent question seemed to say. Mrs. Marden coloured, just as she had done after her strange movement on the parade the other week, and I was therefore surprised when she said to me with unexpected assurance, "'You should really have a steadier hand.' I had begun to stammer a defence of my hand, when I became aware that she had fixed her eyes upon me with an intense appeal. It was ambiguous at first, and only added to my confusion. And suddenly I understood, as plainly as if she had murmured, "'Make believe it was you! Make believe it was you!' The servant came back to take the morsels of the cup and wipe up the spilt tea, and while I was in the midst of making believe, Mrs. Marden abruptly brushed away from me and from her daughter's attention, and went into another room. I noticed that she gave no heed to the state of her dress. I saw nothing more of either of them that evening, but the next morning, in the King's Road, I met Miss Marden with a roll of music in her muff. She told me she had been a little way alone, to practice duets with a friend, and I asked her if she would go a little way further in company. She gave me leave to attend her to her door, and as we stood before it I inquired if I might go in. "'No, not to-day. I don't want you,' she said candidly, though not roughly, while the words caused me to direct a wistful, disconcerted gaze at one of the windows of the house. It fell upon the white face of Mrs. Marden, who was looking out at us from the drawing-room. She stood there long enough for me to see that it was she, and not an apparition, as I had thought for a second, and then she vanished before her daughter had observed her. The girl, during our walk, had said nothing about her. As I had been told they didn't want me, I left them alone a little, after which circumstances supervened that kept us still longer apart. I finally went up to London, and while there I received a pressing invitation to come immediately down to Tranton, a pretty old place in Sussex, belonging to a couple whose acquaintance I had lately made. I went to Tranton from town, and on arriving found the Mardens, with a dozen other people at the house. The first thing Mrs. Marden said was, "'Will you forgive me?' And when I asked what I had to forgive, she answered, "'My throwing my tea over you.' I replied that it had gone over herself, whereupon she said, "'At any rate, I was very rude, but some day I think you'll understand, and then you'll make allowances for me.' The first day I was there she dropped two or three of these references, she had already indulged in more than one, to the mystic initiation that was in store for me, so that I began, as the phrase is, to chaff her about it to say, I would rather it were less wonderful, and take it out at once. She answered that when it should come to me, I would have to take it out, there would be little enough option. That it would come was privately clear to her, a deep presentiment, which was the only reason she had ever mentioned the matter. 
Didn't I remember she had told me she had intuitions? From the first time of her seeing me, she had been sure that there were things I should not escape knowing. Meanwhile, there was nothing to do but wait and keep cool, not to be precipitate. She particularly wished not to be any more nervous than she was. And I was above all not to be nervous myself. One got used to everything. I declared that though I couldn't make out what she was talking about, I was terribly frightened. The absence of a clue gave such a range to one's imagination. I exaggerated on purpose, for if Mrs. Marden was mystifying, I can scarcely say she was alarming. I couldn't imagine what she meant, but I wondered more than I shuddered. I might have said to myself that she was a little wrong in the upper story, but that never occurred to me. She struck me as hopelessly right. There were other girls in the house, but Charlotte Marden was the most charming, which was so generally felt to be the case that she really interfered with the slaughter of ground game. There were two or three men, and I was of the number, who actually preferred her to the society of the beaters. In short, she was recognized as a form of sport, superior and exquisite. She was kind to all of us. She made us go out late and come in early. I don't know whether she flirted, but several other members of the party thought they did. Indeed, as regards himself, Teddy Bostwick, who had come over from Brighton, was visibly sure. The third day I was at Tranton was a Sunday, and there was a very pretty walk to morning service over the fields. It was grey, windless weather, and the bell of the little old church that nestled in the hollow of the Sussex Down sounded near and domestic. We were a straggling procession in the mild, damp air, which, as always at that season, gave one the feeling that after the trees were bare there was more of it, a larger sky and I managed to fall a good way behind with Miss Marden. I remember entertaining, as we moved together over the turf, a strong impulse to say something intensely personal, something violent and important, important for me, such as that I had never seen her so lovely, or that that particular moment was the sweetest of my life. But always in youth such words have been on the lips many times before they are spoken, and I had the sense, not that I didn't know her well enough, I cared little for that, but that she didn't know me well enough. In the church, where there were old Tranton tombs and brasses, the big Tranton pew was full. Several of us were scattered, and I found a seat for Miss Marden, and another for myself beside it, at a distance from her mother and from most of our friends. There were two or three decent rustics on the bench, who moved in further to make room for us, and I took my place first to cut off my companion from our neighbours. After she was seated, there was still a space left, which remained empty till service was about half over. This at least was the moment at which I became aware that another person had entered and had taken the seat. When I noticed him, he had apparently been for some minutes in the pew, for he had settled himself and put down his hat beside him, and, with his hands crossed on the knob of his cane, was gazing before him at the altar. He was a pale young man in black, with the air of a gentleman. I was slightly startled on perceiving him, for Miss Marden had not attracted my attention to his entrance by moving to make room for him. After a few minutes, observing that he had no prayer-book, I reached across my neighbour and placed mine before him on the ledge of the pew, a manoeuvre the motive of which was not unconnected with the possibility that in my own destitution Miss Marden would give me one side of her velvet volume to hold. 
The pretext, however, was destined to fail, for at the moment I offered him the book, the intruder, whose intrusion I had so condoned, rose from his place without thanking me, stepped noiselessly out of the pew—it had no door—and so, discreetly as to attract no attention, passed down the centre of the church. A few minutes had sufficed for his devotions. His behaviour was unbecoming, his early departure even more than his late arrival, but he managed so quietly that we were not incommoded, and I perceived on turning a little to glance after him that nobody was disturbed by his withdrawal. I only noticed, and with surprise, that Mrs. Marden had been so affected by it as to rise involuntarily an instant in her place. She stared at him as he passed, but he passed very quickly, and she as quickly dropped down again, though not too soon to catch my eye across the church. Five minutes later I asked Miss Marden in a low voice if she would kindly pass me back my prayer-book. I had waited to see if she would spontaneously perform the act. She restored this aid to devotion, but had been so far from troubling herself about it that she could say to me as she did so, "'Why on earth did you put it there?' I was on the point of answering her when she dropped on her knees and I held my tongue. I had only been going to say— to be decently civil. After the benediction, as we were leaving our places, I was slightly surprised again to see that Mrs. Marden, instead of going out with her companions, had come up the aisle to join us, having apparently something to say to her daughter. She said it, but in an instant I observed that it was only a pretext. Her real business was with me. She pushed Charlotte forward and suddenly murmured to me, "'Did you see him?' "'The gentleman who sat down here?' How could I help seeing him? Hush, she said, with the intensest excitement. Don't speak to her, don't tell her. She slipped her hand into my arm, to keep me near her, to keep me, it seemed, away from her daughter. The precaution was unnecessary, for Teddy Bostwick had already taken possession of Miss Marden, and as they passed out of the church in front of me, I saw one of the other men close up on her other hand. It appeared to be considered that I had had my turn. Mrs. Marden withdrew her hand from my arm as soon as we got out, but not before I felt that she had really needed the support. "'Don't speak to anyone. Don't tell anyone,' she went on. "'I don't understand. Tell them what?' "'Why, that you saw him.' "'Surely they saw him for themselves.' "'Not one of them. Not one of them.' She spoke in a tone of such passionate decision that I glanced at her. She was staring straight before her. But she felt the challenge of my eyes, and she stopped short in the old brown timber porch of the church, with the others well in advance of us, and said, looking at me now, and in a quite extraordinary manner, "'You're the only person, the only person in the world.' "'But you, dear madam?' "'Oh, me, of course. That's my curse.' And with this she moved rapidly away from me to join the body of the party. I hovered on its outskirts on the way home for I had food for rumination. Whom had I seen, and why was the apparition? It rose before my mind's eye very vividly again, invisible to the others. If an exception had been made for Mrs. Marsden, why did it constitute a curse, and why was I to share so questionable an advantage? This inquiry, carried on in my own locked breast, kept me doubtless silent enough during luncheon. After luncheon I went out on the old terrace to smoke a cigarette, but I had only taken a couple of turns 
when I perceived Mrs. Marden's moulded mask at the window of one of the rooms which opened on the crooked flags. It reminded me of the same flitting presence at the window at Brighton, the day I met Charlotte and walked home with her. But this time my ambiguous friend didn't vanish. She tapped on the pane and motioned me to come in. She was in a queer little apartment, one of the many reception rooms of which the ground floor at Tranton consisted. It was known as the Indian Room, and had a decoration vaguely oriental, bamboo lounges, lacquered screens, lanterns with long fringes, and strange idols and cabinets, objects not held to conduce to sociability. The place was little used, and when I went round to her we had it to ourselves. As soon as I entered she said to me, "'Please tell me this. Are you in love with my daughter?' I hesitated a moment. "'Before I answer your question, will you kindly tell me what gives you the idea? I don't consider that I have been very forward.' Mrs. Marden, contradicting me with her beautiful anxious eyes, gave me no satisfaction on the point I mentioned. She only went on strenuously. "'Did you say nothing to her on the way to church?' "'What makes you think I said anything?' "'The fact that you saw him.' "'Saw whom, dear Mrs. Marden?' "'Oh, you know,' she answered gravely, even a little reproachfully, as if I were trying to humiliate her by making her phrase the unphrasable. "'Do you mean the gentleman who formed the subject of your strange statement at church, the one who came into the pew?' "'You saw him, you saw him,' Mrs. Marden panted, with a strange mixture of dismay and relief. "'Of course I saw him, and so did you.' "'It didn't follow. Did you feel it to be inevitable?' I was puzzled again. Inevitable? That you should see him? Certainly, since I'm not blind. You might have been. Everyone else is. I was wonderfully at sea, and I frankly confessed it to my interlocutress, but the case was not made clearer by her presently exclaiming, I knew you would, from the moment you should really be in love with her. I knew it would be the test. What do I mean, the proof? "'Are there such strange bewilderments attached to that high state?' I asked, smiling. "'You perceive there are. You see him. You see him,' Mrs. Marden announced, with tremendous exaltation. "'You'll see him again.' "'I've no objection, but I shall take more interest in him, if you'll kindly tell me who he is.' She hesitated, looking down a moment. Then she said, raising her eyes, "'I'll tell you, if you'll tell me first, what you said to her on the way to church.' "'Has she told you I said anything?' "'Do I need that?' smiled Mrs. Marden. "'Oh, yes, I remember your intuitions. But I'm sorry to see they're at fault this time, because I really said nothing to your daughter that was the least out of the way.' "'Are you very sure?' "'On my honour, Mrs. Marden.' "'Then you consider that you're not in love with her?' "'That's another affair,' I laughed. "'You are, you are. You wouldn't have seen him if you hadn't been.' "'Who the deuce is he, then, madam?' I inquired with some irritation. She would still only answer me with another question. "'Didn't you at least want to say something to her? Didn't you come very near it?' The question was much to the point. It justified the famous intuitions. "'Very near it. It was the turn of a hair. I don't know what kept me quiet.' "'That was quite enough,' said Mrs. Marden. "'It isn't what you say that determines it. It's what you feel.' That's what he goes by. I was annoyed at last by her reiterated reference to an identity yet to be established, 
and I clasped my hands with an air of supplication which covered much real impatience, a sharper curiosity, and even the first short throbs of a certain sacred dread. I entreat you to tell me whom you're talking about. She threw up her arms, looking away from me, as if to shake off both reserve and responsibility. Sir Edmund Orme. And who is Sir Edmund Orme? At the moment I spoke she gave a start. Hush, here they come. Then, as following the direction of her eyes, I saw Charlotte Marden on the terrace at the window, she added with an intensity of warning, Don't notice him, never. Charlotte, who had had her hands beside her eyes, peering into the room and smiling, made a sign that she was to be admitted, on which I went and opened the long window. Her mother turned away, and the girl came in with a laughing challenge. What plot in the world are you two hatching here? Some plan, I forget what, was in prospect for the afternoon, as to which Mrs. Marden's participation or consent was solicited. My adhesion was taken for granted, and she had been half over the place in her quest. I was flurried, because I saw that Mrs. Marden was flurried. When she turned round to meet her daughter, she covered it by a kind of extravagance, throwing herself on the girl's neck and embracing her. And to pass it off, I said fancifully to Charlotte, "'I've been asking your mother for your hand.' "'Oh, indeed, and has she given it?' Miss Marden answered gaily. "'She was just going to when you appeared there. "'Well, it's only for a moment. I'll leave you free.' "'Do you like him, Charlotte?' Mrs. Marden asked, with a candour I scarcely expected. "'It's difficult to say it before him, isn't it?' the girl replied, entering into the humour of the thing but looking at me as if she didn't like me. She would have had to say it before another person as well, for at that moment there stepped into the room from the terrace, the window had been left open, a gentleman who had come into sight, at least into mine, only within the instant. Mrs. Marden had said, Here they come, but he appeared to have followed her daughter at a certain distance. I immediately recognized him as the personage who had sat beside us in church. This time I saw him better, saw that his face and his whole air were strange. I speak of him as a personage, because one felt, indescribably, as if a reigning prince had come into the room. He held himself with a kind of habitual majesty, as if he were different from us. Yet he looked fixedly and gravely at me, till I wondered what he expected of me. Did he consider that I should bend my knee or kiss his hand? He turned his eyes in the same way on Mrs. Marden but she knew what to do. After the first agitation produced by his approach, she took no notice of him whatever. It made me remember her passionate adjuration to me. I had to achieve a great effort to imitate her, for though I knew nothing about him but that he was Sir Edmund Orme, I felt his presence as a strong appeal, almost as an oppression. He stood there without speaking, young, pale, handsome, clean-shaven, decorous, with extraordinary light blue eyes, and something old-fashioned, like a portrait of years ago, in his head, his manner of wearing his hair. He was in complete mourning, one immediately felt that he was very well dressed, and he carried his hat in his hand. He looked again strangely hard at me, harder than any one in the world had ever looked before, and I remember feeling rather cold and wishing he would say something. No silence had ever seemed to me so soundless. All this was, of course, an impression intensely rapid, but
but that it had consumed some instants was proved to me suddenly by the aspect of Charlotte Marden, who stared from her mother to me and back again. He never looked at her, and she had no appearance of looking at him, and then broke out with, "'What on earth is the matter with you? You've such odd faces!' I felt the colour come back to mine, and when she went on in the same tone, one would think you had seen a ghost. I was conscious that I had turned very red. Sir Edmund Orme never blushed, and I could see that he had no capacity for embarrassment. One had met people of that sort, but never any one with such a grand indifference. "'Don't be impertinent, and go and tell them all that I'll join them,' said Mrs. Marden, with much dignity, but with a quaver in her voice. "'And will you come, you?' the girl asked, turning away. I made no answer, taking the question somehow as meant for her companion. But he was more silent than I, and when she reached the door—she was going out that way—she stopped with her hand on the knob, and looked at me, repeating it. I assented, springing forward to open the door for her, and as she passed out she exclaimed to me mockingly, "'You haven't got your wits about you. You shan't have my hand.' I closed the door and turned round to find that Sir Edmund Orme had, during the moment my back was presented to him, retired by the window. Mrs. Marden stood there, and we looked at each other long. It had only then, as the girl flitted away, come home to me that her daughter was unconscious of what had happened. It was that, oddly enough, that gave me a sudden sharp shake, and not my own perception of our visitor, which appeared perfectly natural. It made the fact vivid to me that she had been equally unaware of him in church, and the two facts together, now that they were over, set my heart more sensibly beating. I wiped my forehead, and Mrs. Marden broke out with a low, distressful wail. "'Now you know my life! Now you know my life!' "'In God's name! Who is he? What is he?' "'He's a man I wronged.' "'How did you wrong him?' "'Oh, awfully! Years ago!' Years ago? Why, he's very young. Young, young, cried Mrs. Marden. He was born before I was. Then why does he look so? She came nearer to me. She laid her hand on my arm, and there was something in her face that made me shrink a little. Don't you understand? Don't you feel? she murmured reproachfully. I feel very queer, I laughed, and I was conscious that my laugh betrayed it. "'He's dead,' said Mrs. Marden, from her white face. "'Dead?' I panted. "'Then that gentleman was—' I couldn't even say the word. "'Call him what you like. There are twenty vulgar names. He's a perfect presence.' "'He's a splendid presence,' I cried. "'The place is haunted, haunted.' I exulted in the word as if it represented the fulfilment of my dearest dream. "'It isn't the place, more's the pity. That has nothing to do with it.' "'That it's you, dear lady?' I said, as if this were still better. "'No, nor me either. I wish it were.' "'Perhaps it's me,' I suggested, with a sickly smile. "'It's nobody but my child, my innocent, innocent child.' And with this Mrs. Marden broke down. She dropped into a chair and burst into tears. I stammered some question. I pressed her on some bewildered appeal, but she waved me off unexpectedly and passionately. I persisted. Couldn't I help her? Couldn't I intervene? You have intervened, she sobbed. You're in it. You're in it. I'm very glad to be in anything so curious, I boldly declared. 
Glad or not, you can't get out of it. I don't want to get out of it. It's too interesting. I'm glad you like it. Go away. But I want to know more about it. You'll see all you want. Go away. But I want to understand what I see. How can you when I don't understand myself? We'll do so together. We'll make it out. At this she got up, doing what she could to obliterate her tears. Yes, it will be better together. That's why I've liked you. Oh, we'll see it through, I declared. Then you must control yourself better. I will, I will, with practice. You'll get used to it, said Mrs. Marden, in a tone I never forgot. But go and join them. I'll come in a moment. I passed out to the terrace, and I felt that I had a part to play. So far from dreading another encounter with the perfect presence, as Mrs. Marden called it, I was filled with an excitement that was positively joyous. I desired a renewal of the sensation. I opened myself wide to the impression. I went round the house as quickly as if I expected to overtake Sir Edmund Orme. I didn't overtake him just then, but the day was not to close without my recognizing that, as Mrs. Marden had said, I should see all I wanted of him. End of section one.